it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Tonight is episode 188. And tonight we are going to do a little bit of a nerdy, geeky numbers metric type podcast. So if you are not up on this, we have a Back to the Beginners series that is listed on our website. And you can go there and listen to some of those podcasts and they will help fill you in on some of the acronyms and terminology that you may not be super familiar with. So if some of these things that we're talking about tonight are a little confusing to you, please go back and listen to those and then come back and listen to this episode. It'll make a lot more sense. We'll try to make it as simple as we can, but there may be some terminology that may be a little bit unfamiliar to some of you. So if with that, I will go ahead and read the first question. So we're going to do, Andrew and I will do our usual give and take and we'll answer some questions tonight. So the first one here is, uh, you mentioned in your podcast that you both look up to Peter Lynch and Benjamin Graham as investors. After reading both The Intelligent Investor and One Up on Wall Street, it seems like your investment strategy is leaning more towards that of Benjamin Graham. Are there any reasons why you choose the value approach over growth and will you stick with it in the future? Andrew, what are your thoughts on that really good question? Yeah, this is a continuation of last week's question. So appreciate you, Lewis, for writing in again. I guess I was lucky in the sense that I was exposed to the history of the market without really looking for it. And so I got that education, I got that tuition about how the market functions before I had to lose money experiencing it for myself. So I know Benjamin Graham's... Maybe we could start there, Dave. Benjamin Graham has a great description of the market. And basically, he talks about Mr. Market, how there's so much emotion in the market and how the market itself doesn't really behave rationally and it kind of moves up and down. And so for me, reading Benjamin Graham and and knowing that you're basically separating the idea of there's the business part and there's the stock part and the stock part can be really crazy, even though the business is being rational. Yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a perfect analogy. And I think that's the, one of the things that really stuck with me. And that's why I think I was more, 
I gravitated more towards the ben- Benjamin Graham idea. He is very much all about logic and using numbers and being rational. And his description of Mr. Market is in chapter eight, I believe, of the invest- Intelligent Investor. And it is one of the best chapters, one of the best books about investing. Uh, there are definitely some great takeaways from all of all of the information in that book and chapters eight and chapter 20 are ones that both really spoke to me as well as Warren Buffett. And the idea of being rational when things are going crazy in the market is something that just kind of appealed to me. Uh, I can't remember who it was who said this now, but there was a phrase uh, that I think it might've been Charlie Munger said that value investing either sticks with you or it doesn't. You just kind of get it or you don't. And for me, value investing just kind of stuck. And it was one of those things that as soon as I started reading about it, it just really made a lot of sense to me and spoke to me, I guess, if you will. And the idea of finding great investments that are selling for a discount or on sale really kind of appealed to, I guess, my cheapskate nature. And it was something that really kind of struck me and one of my favorite Buffett quotes is he likes to buy his socks like he likes to buy his stocks on sale and I guess I'm kind of along the same lines I love one up on Wall Street I love Peter Lynch and he's got a great uh, investment outlook he had a great performance throughout his career and those are all great things but for whatever reason Ben Graham and Warren Buffett Charlie Munger those guys really kind of I guess sung to me more so than Peter Lynch did. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not gonna pick one. It's like it's like picking your children. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I feel <laughs> they've all given valuable lessons. Obviously, I think Peter Lynch is is a lot more bullish and maybe uh, focuses more on on the winners and some of the other guys. I I I wonder if if something that made it ring in my head was the fact that. You know, when when I had early experience to the market in my early twenties and before I really started taking it seriously, just the whole environment around the market was very post financial crisis, and there was still a lot of mistrust with Wall Street, and those memories and those scars were still very fresh in that environment. And so, for me, I guess I've always had a conservative approach when it came to finances and similar to what you're saying, Dave, how, how that kind of part of value investing really spoke to you. To me, it was, it was a lot about reducing risk and not wanting to be caught up in a financial calamity like what we saw in 2008, 2009. And so, you know, going back, I guess, learning from those greats, also being able to learn about I I guess I'm a history buff. I never realized I was until I started finding it interesting in investing books, but learning about the nineties and and the dot-com boom and how much craziness happened in the market and then how far it crashed. And then repeating that again with the housing bubble. And so you start to learn about all these cycles and you start to understand and realize that when you have certain stocks, certain groups of stocks, that are doing very, very well, like too good to be true well, um, a lot of times it's not meant to last and it, and it doesn't last. And so I think that mindset of 
history has seen similar things, no matter which decade you look at, there's always these, these certain outperformers that rise and crash spectacularly. And I think when you have that history as a backdrop and a context, it helps you maybe start to be more conservative and look for ways to kind of protect your money and just kind of err, err on the side of caution. And so for me, when I look at stocks and I try to find a margin of safety emphasis on the safety, I'm hoping that these stocks will grow 10%, 15% a year, but I'm not going to necessarily bank on that being a 100% fact because I want there to be some cushion just in case, hey, maybe the stock didn't, didn't grow 10%. Maybe the business wasn't able to compound 10% a year. Maybe they only compounded 8% or 7%. But if you pay a decent enough price, that will be enough to drive a lot of great returns. And so I really like that idea instead of stretching every little thing we can and, and this company needs to kill it in the next two years. Otherwise, it's all going to crash like a house of cards. I don't like that kind of mentality and it doesn't sit well with how I like to think about even envisioning myself. If I buy a stock and I envision having the stress about what happens next quarter, is that really, is this activity that I'm doing, is it really adding value to my life at that point? And it's hard and, 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 and it kind of draws me away from those type of stocks. That's that's great insight, and I I think a lot of those things that you're talking about are, are a lot of the same feelings and emotions that that I had when I first really started getting into the the market was right after the the great financial crisis, and there was a lot of negativity and a lot of distrust in the markets, and I think I probably seized on that. You know, another thing that I think about the the question here, and this is something that I've been thinking about a lot recently, is the, I guess, the division or the apparent division between the value approach and the growth approach. And one of the things that I've been seeing a lot of conversation about, and I've been thinking about this a lot as well, is I, I think that. Charlie Munger said this recently. Uh, he was on the uh, uh, he was speaking at the Daily Journal meeting uh, a couple days ago, and one of the things that he said, which I thought was an interesting take, is he said that all investing is value investing, and by that he meant that you're always looking for a great company, but you're looking for the opportunity to buy it for less than it's really worth. Because the idea is, is that if you can buy it for less than it's actually worth, then at some point it will return, it'll, it'll revert to the mean and it'll grow back to where it's actually what it's a value for. And think about it. I, I've mentioned this in the past, but think about buying an iPhone. If you go out and buy an iPhone and, and the, the phone is, is valued at six or seven hundred dollars, for example, and you are able to find it on sale for five hundred bucks for the exact same phone. Everybody and their brother is going to jump all over that, unless you're a Samsung user. Then, of course, there's the flip side of that. If the same very same phone is selling for twenty eight to three thousand dollars, then very few people would realistically want to buy that. And I think of the stocks as kind of the same way. I want to find that $700 phone that really could grow to be worth $3,000, but I want to pay 500 bucks for it. And that's kind of how I look at investing. And Charlie has said this in the past, 
And I agree with this. Warren is not really, Warren Buffett's really not a value investor in the classic sense. He's more of a quality investor. He's trying to find these fantastic companies that he can buy at a fair or reasonable price. And then it's going to either grow into that valuation or it's going to grow beyond that valuation. And that's really, really kind of what I'm trying to do, and I think maybe that's what Andrew is trying to do, is trying to find these great companies that have a margin of safety, but are maybe selling for less than what they're worth and will grow into those values at some point in the future. And that's, I think, really what I think about when I think about investing. And this whole divide between growth and value, I, I think sometimes it gets it gets played up a little more than it really should. And it really, re- really should look at trying to find an approach that works for you and try to find quality companies at, at a good price. That's really what it comes down to. You, you really have to incorporate growth into how you're valuing a company. And so to take your metaphor one step further, if we have three different models of iPhones, you have an iPhone 12, 9, and 7 or something, each of those are going to be valued differently because each has different features and, and one's going to be better than the other, right? And so right. if stocks have better growth prospects and they do grow faster than others, they're going to demand that premium price. And so as an investor, it's not looking across the board and saying, wow, you know, whatever metric I'm using says this stock is cheap, but rather it's looking at each stock individually and then comparing them all kind of in the aggregate and saying, how much is this company probably going to grow? And so if I'm looking at the stock in a more matured industry, you better believe I'm going to pay a lot cheaper of a price as far as, you know, if we're looking at price to earnings or any price to free cash flow, any price-based metric, I'm going to demand a much lower price for that compared to something that maybe is, is has all the tailwinds in the world going for it. Growth with this market, stealing market share, all of those things, that's going to be allowed to command a premium price. And maybe my margin of safety on that high growing stock is still within expectations that are that are reasonable enough where it's not so detached from reality. You know, I'm not banking on a stock tripling in tripping tripling its profits in the next two years or something. It's it's still within the realm of tangible reality. If you look at a tree as a good example, some branches might grow faster than others, but generally you, you can kind of quantify how long it's going to take a tree to grow. And so look at stocks the same way. You're not going to have a magic bean stock. But you know there could be something in the middle where some grow faster than others, and that's where you make adjustments and you kind of work from there. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before Nerd Wallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply.
Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. Let's be honest here. Your sex life is important. It helps us feel more confident and boosts our happiness. But sometimes we struggle to perform. Our life gets in the way. This is where hymns can help. With their convenient and discreet online platform, you can get help for your erectile dysfunction from the comfort and privacy of your own home. No more waiting rooms, no more awkward conversations, just a simple, direct path to treatment that works around your life, not interrupts it. Invest in your health today. Hims is changing men's health care by providing access to affordable sexual health treatments from the comfort of your couch. Hims provides access to doctor-trusted ED treatment options such as chewable hard mints, brand-name treatments like Viagra, or generic alternatives for up to 95% cheaper. The process is simple and 100% online, no uncomfortable doctor visits. Answer a series of questions on their site, and a medical provider will determine the right treatment option. If prescribed, your medication ships to you free, no insurance is needed. If ED is getting you down, it's time you join the hundreds of thousands of trusted HIMSS subscribers and get treated. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash investing. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash investing for your personalized ED treatment options. Hymns.com slash investing. Hard mints are chewable compounded products which are not approved by or verified for safety and effectiveness by the FDA. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See website for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. That is very well said, and I love that. I love that analogy of the tree and the different iPhones. That's a, that's a fantastic analogy. So that that was good stuff. All right. You're welcome. All right. Let's move on to the next question. Uh, In your investment strategy, you state that you screen for companies with low PE ratios and low debt to equity, et cetera. What if these metrics are low because the company is declining as opposed to being undervalued? How do you know which one is which? Andrew, what are your thoughts on that? So it's good timing because I actually wrote an email about this today in the sense that 
let's take let's take the the first part. So low PE ratio. Just real quick, PE stands for price to earnings. You're taking the price and you're comparing it to the earnings. So if we go back to the iPhone, you're taking the price and you're comparing it to the iPhone model. And so that PE can change because it's based on one single thing, earnings, and those earnings move from year to year. And so particularly like a really strange year like 2020 was, you might see a company stumble or have a crazy inflow of cash, but it's a temporary situation. And that's going to push the PE a lot higher or a lot lower simply because there was one year that was different. And so you, you really have to look at the context and, and you, you, you know, in a situation like this where the year was strange and we had outside factors that affected everything that may or may not be reflective of a business that has changed or not. So when I think of maybe a business environment that's changed, I look at cruise cruise ships. I think it's pretty obvious that their long-term prospects have changed. They've had these very expensive assets that depreciate, they lose value. I mean, anybody who's ever owned a boat knows how expensive they are to maintain and how much they they lose in value. Imagine having a bunch of those and that's your business. And by the way, you haven't been able to make any profit on it because nobody's allowed to to ride on it. So that's that's the situation a cruise ship's in versus maybe a retailer where people haven't been buying makeup or people haven't been buying jeans but you know one day in a post pandemic world people will probably do, still do that stuff so you know you have differences there and so you notice how that's not anything to do with numbers but it's really looking at the individual company and what the situation is and so i think whether you're looking at a price earnings ratio or you're looking at the debt to equity and you're looking at where these things move over time you really have to try to take the big picture into effect. And you really won't know the answers to those questions unless you actually find out how a bus- how the business works, that particular business, what drives it, what makes it successful, what, what makes it fail. And so that's why we, we go back to having a circle, circle of competence and learning about these businesses, reading the, the annual reports, because that's how you'll understand the big picture and and you won't get there most of the time with the numbers. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. No, you won't. And and looking at the numbers is sometimes just the first part of it. And and Andrew's conversation about looking at the big picture is exactly the way you have to look at it. You have to, you can't look at it just on a quarterly or yearly basis and make that decision because as Andrew was saying, those, the prices and the earnings move uh, and the prices will move every day and the earnings will move every quarter and it's not a static thing. And so it's something that you have to look at over a longer period of time. And that's the only way that you can get some sort of context to what's actually going on at that particular period that you're looking at. And a perfect example, like Andrew was said, is, is this last year, uh, 2020, as we will all state was a crazy, goofy, partially awful year. And when you look at 
many, many companies in different industries, there was lots of companies. Uh, uh, one that sticks out in my mind is Disney. Uh, Disney had arguably a fantastic year in the stock market, but their financial performance was lackluster at best outside of Disney Plus, simply for the fact that there were no movies and the parks were shut down and those were large portions of their income. So when you, if you take that, if you just looked at Disney, if you took 2019 prior and didn't look at anything and then just looked at 2020, you'd, you'd look at that and then look at the stock price and wonder what the heck is going on? Because if you look at the numbers for Disney, it's brutal. But then if you look at the stock price, it's awesome. So it, it, there, there has to be more context that you have to put into the analysis than just looking at one specific ratio or a, a, a slew of ratios over a shorter period of time. Uh, the other part of this that you have to think about is you have to think about what industry is that particular company is in. So, for example, if you're looking at insurance industry, for example, or if you look at fintech, Either one of those industries has a, a characteristic, if you will, of them. Insurance companies, by and large, are considered, I don't know, boring. <laughs> and they're not exciting, high growth, high revenue, high revenue growth type, type companies. And so, by and large, you're going to see more conservative PE ratios, for example, with an insurance company. If you look at the fintech industry, they have exploding growth super high margins, and they also have very high P.E. ratios. Uh, I was looking at PayPal uh, a few days ago, and their P.E. ratio was a scintillating 72, so it's quite high. And I think Squares was like 2,000 or something crazy like that, so they're very, very high. But anyway, my point with all that being is that a lot of it sometimes, too, will have a bearing on what sector it's in. If you're looking at banks, insurance companies, uh, something a little more uh, middle of the road, not super exciting, not high growth type things, you're going to see more conservative numbers. If you look at something that has to do with technology, you're going to see much higher ratios because the markets are bidding those prices up because the revenues are are exploding and they're very, very high. You look at Facebook and, and Microsoft, for example, their PEs are, I think, 26 and 35-ish or so. Don't hold me to those numbers, but they're more conservative. But if you looked at at Google, it's in the high 30s, low 40s, which is much higher. So there's there's going to be a range there, but you have to look at the big picture, but you also have to look at the sector as well. And a lot of those things will help you, I guess, narrow down that that focus of whether the company is is doing well or not doing well. And bottom line is you have to read, you have to look at the 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 financials, you have to read the reports and all that information because that will give you the full picture. So follow what Andrew was saying, telling you. That's that's the way to go. That was a good. That was a great way to summarize it. The last part of the question here, he says, in addition to your current portfolio, do you have any money in ETFs as a safety net? What are your opinions on investing in ETFs on top of individual stocks? Dave, you go first. All right. Um, I personally do not have any money in ETFs outside of a few bond uh, ETFs that I own. So I do not have any stock ETFs at the current 
uh, moment. My opinions on it is you need to do what is best for you and what is going to work best for you. ETFs are a great option for people that are of, uh, I will call it more of a defensive mind. In other words, they don't want to be active stock pickers. And if you don't want to be active stock picker, then ETFs are absolutely the way to go for you. Uh, they can get great returns. They don't require a lot of effort and a lot of maintenance on your part. It's one of those things that you can kind of set it and forget it kind of thing. And if you look at your 401ks, the majority of your 401ks are going to be in ETFs or index funds, any of those kinds of things. And there's nothing wrong with those. And finding the key is to find an ETF that's going to fit your particular investment needs, as well as finding one that has low um, fees so that you're not paying a lot of extra money out of the earnings that you make to maintain the ETF. And, you know, I've, I've recommended it to my sister-in-law and my sister that want to have some individual stock exposure, but they don't want to pay a, a ton of attention to that kind of stuff. They want to, they want me to do it for them. So, uh, I've recommended that they buy ETFs for a majority of their money and then have other th- other single investments in stocks. And that's, that's kind of the way I've thought of it. So I'm curious to hear what Andrew has to say about this. I've, I've mentioned before, and if not on the show, definitely in the emails I have outside of the emergency fund, I have over 95% of my net worth in the stocks that I recommend for the e-leather. So the e-leather has obviously the real money portfolio where I'm putting $150 a month into each stock pick. And then outside of that, I have my own retirement accounts. Those are all in the same picks. So I don't have ETFs. At the same time, I kind of understand that not everybody's as into it as I am. And so I know people like Andy Schuler. he's written on the blog how he has ETFs when he wants exposure for an industry that he's not too familiar with yet. I know Brain Dennis from Stratosphere, he has ETFs recommended with his newsletter as well. So, you know, there's no right answer, no right solution. And it, and it comes down to what you're trying to achieve and what you're comfortable with. And so ETFs can be great for diversification as long as you understand some of the the the, the positives and the negatives of ETFs. You can decide whether it's a good thing for you to to have them or not. And for me, it's it's no. All right. So we're going to move on to the next question. We have a great question here from Jeff. Uh, He wanted to know how often we should be recalculating ratios like price to earnings, price to sales, or price to book. Is this an exercise that you do each quarter after reports are released? Love the material and appreciate you and Dave's time to share your knowledge. Andrew, what are your thoughts on Jeff's question? So i generally look at a company in my portfolio when the 10K is released, which is the annual report. It will be once a year. And really, you know, if it comes to recalculating the ratios, I'm not so much recalculating valuation ratios unless I'm considering buying it or selling it. Um, If it's just something that's in my portfolio and I'm happy with it, then I might check on the company, make sure nothing too crazy is happening, right? They're not like all of a sudden loading up on all this debt or they're not having serious problems with with driving sales in the business. Those type of things, as long as that's not happening, generally it's just going to be let this thing float down the river. 
And so I don't really have a set schedule for that kind of stuff. I can see if somebody would want that. But you know, it kind of comes down to also what's your what's your what's your long-term goal with this, you know? Are you trying to are you trying to really kind of squeeze the juice out of out of this fruit and are you trying to you know play the reversion to the mean game where you're jumping in and out of stocks as as they bounce um quickly and then you're you're buying them when they're cheap and then you're getting out when they're fairly priced and are you doing that over and over and over again then yeah you probably should be recalculating as frequently as possible but if you're playing the the more longer term kind of just let it compound um, maybe pay higher prices for that then you probably don't need to recalculate that as much so it's it's it come you, you want to align what what your behavior is with what your goals are and how you're trying to achieve them and so that that requires a little bit of thought but um, nothing that's too impossible and so in this particular case and I think for most investors they probably don't need to be checking up every quarter unless something like super scary happens like you know Disney just announced they had to close all their parks for example then you'd probably be checking in a lot more frequently than if business was just happening like usual yeah, that's a very good point. And I will admit, uh, prior to 2020, I was more along the lines of what Andrew would do. Uh, at 20, uh, 2020 kind of changed that. And I, I honestly, I read all the quarterly reports. I listened to earnings calls and I paid a lot more attention to the quarter by quarter results of the companies that, that I own than I did prior to that. Uh, some of that was just because I'm a nerd and I like to do that and I'm kind of a glutton for punishment. And some of it, I didn't spend a lot of time recalculating ratios. That I would only really do if there was something drastic going on and I wanted to have a better financial sense. It was more along the lines of just trying to keep a, I guess, a hand on the pulse and understand what was going on with the company. So I would read, I would read through the quarterly reports and I would read through the uh, transcripts of the earnings calls just to kind of get a, a, a pulse of what was going on with the company. But I didn't, I didn't spend a lot of time recalculating metrics or recalculating uh, intrinsic values unless like Andrew was saying, there was an opportunity to either sell or buy more of the company. And I wanted to see, kind of where it was with that otherwise i i just kind of left it alone but i did i did pay more attention than i have in the past for sure it kind of actually ties in with the other question we did earlier because you know if you're recalculating these things and the company has like some unsustainable jump or some really quick change that's very temporary then if you're recalculating you might think it's all of a sudden an opportunity when it might not be so you know businesses Sure, they sure the business world's fast, but a business isn't going to grow. Again, go back to the tree; <laughs> it's not going to grow. It, it it's not going to grow to the sky overnight. And so, even some of the biggest changes in the business and the biggest growth is not going to happen overnight most of the time. So, I think it's it's important and especially important. Well, it's important for everybody; it doesn't matter who you are. But whether you're somebody who does this full time or you're somebody who's just kind of the weekend warrior 
we all have a limited number of hours in the day and we all have a limited amount of time that we can research. And so you want to be smart about what you're focusing your efforts on. And if recalculating ratios like this isn't moving the needle for you, then it's probably not something worth doing. Very well said. That's excellent advice. All right, let's, uh, let's move on to the last question here. Hey, I've been binging your podcast for about a month now, and I was wondering what is a good tool to find out when a company has to have their debt paid by? Love the podcast. Been learning so much, Austin. Andrew, what is your thought? Uh, do, is there a good tool out there that I'm not aware of? <laughs> the tool is roll up your sleeves and, and dive into a 10K. I haven't seen a tool. Maybe maybe that's an opportunity for some aspiring entrepreneur out there. I haven't seen one that that lays that out simply like that. So what you would do is you would go to the annual report or 10K. You're going to have to sift through over 100 pages or so. But if you can go to the section where they talk about contractual obligations, there's a table there and it will show you how much debt is due for each year. So, you know, what's due 2021, 2022, and how much interest is due in each of those years. And that's really where you can find that out. And I don't know where else to go for that. I don't either. Is uh, control F an option for something like that? Yeah, hundred percent control F and um, that you'll just search. And I usually just type in obligations and that'll get you there. Awesome. Yeah, I wish there was a tool, but no, there isn't. Andrew, Andrew's way is the only way that I know of. All right, folks. Well, that is going to wrap up our conversation for this evening. I want to thank everybody for taking the time out of their day to write us these great questions. And we hope you guys are, are getting some good knowledge out of our conversations. And we love helping you guys as much as we can. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and sign us out. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week. We'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.